0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Rico, and as always, we have a great show for you tonight. Uh, to start things off here in just a few moments, we're going to be uh, having a great panel discussion tonight on the Coach's Corner panel, and I'll introduce uh, the gang uh, here in just a moment, but I uh, just got a few quick announcements here, and I want to remind everybody, of course, that we are live every Thursday night uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. Central uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, best way to find us, of course, is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash live and you'll find us there front and center. Uh, you can also visit that link a little bit later on, and uh, just scroll down to the on-demand section and find all of the uh, previously recorded shows, including tonight's will be there in its entirety, so you can listen to the show uh, when it's convenient for you if you're not able to join us live. Some other great ways to tune in as well, go to itunes.com, stitcher.com, uh, also talkstreamlive.com, and I think I said TuneIn.com as well, Uh, some other great social media platforms. I forgot there for a second where we were. And uh, you can tune in there again, just type in Golf Talk Live. Uh, A little bit later on the show, in the second half, uh, Yvette uh, Piguis is going to be joining me. She's the uh, uh, Chief Transformational Officer for YourInvisibleDisability.com. She's also Ms. Wheelchair International for 2016-17 and host of DisabilityLife.tv. And she was actually... Uh, on with another group of adaptive golfers uh, on the Women of Golf show on Tuesdays uh, a little earlier in the season uh, with, of course, my good friend, LPGA professional Cindy Miller and I. And I invited Yvette back uh, to talk about uh, her story a little bit more uh, in depth. And I think uh, you'll find it very, very interesting. So hope you'll stick around and join us. Um, but first off, let me uh, say before I bring the gang out here and introduce them, I'm very excited tonight of, uh, about uh, welcoming a new sponsor to the show, uh, beginning this week, uh, tonight's the first night, GolfSwing.com will be sponsoring the Coach's Corner panel segment of Golf Talk Live. i uh, tell you a little bit about them. GolfSwing.com, with its cutting-edge technology, have teamed up alongside some of the best golf instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. Together, they uh, have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf. So if you're ready to break 190, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. In addition to sponsoring the Coach's Corner segment, each week I will feature a different golf instructional video tip and instructor. uh, And I'm going to do that feature tonight through my social media platform uh, with the first instructor after tonight's broadcast. So join today, watch, practice, and improve your game. And if you want to learn more uh, and join uh, the great uh, online video academy at golfswing.com, go to golfswing.com. All right, we've got Coach's Corner panel uh, coming up, first up of course is Chuck Evans. He's a Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher, uh, Golf uh, Digest Top Teachers in America, uh, Top 50 Growth of the Game teacher. And Chuck is of course the Director of Instruction at Emerald Bay Golf Course, just down the street from me in Destin, Florida, and of course the owner of Chuck Evans Golf. Also uh, joining on the panel is Bill Abrams. He's a PGA professional and owner, uh, Director of Instruction at Golf Swings, uh, sorry, Golf Solutions Academy in Belmaro Woods, Creek, Illinois. And also, you can find him in the winter months. He's going to be down at uh, Grand Palm Resort in Florida. He'll tell us a little bit more about that after uh, tonight's panel discussion, and he'll give us a quick update. And rounding out the panel, of course, is my good friend Jamie Leno Zimron. She's a speaker, instructor, body worker, and consultant, and an Aikido sixth degree black belt, uh, Class A LPJ Teach Professional, a corporate and conference speaker. Uh, executive trainer and coach, and speaker for Vistage International and TEC Canada, which is, of course, the executive committee. Uh, Guys, uh, welcome back to Coach's Corner. Thanks for having us, Ted. Thanks again, Ted. (laughs) Thank you, Ted. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks, uh, as always, for giving of your time. Um, very excited, as I said. Of course, we've got a great sponsor, uh, golfswing.com, that wants to uh, sponsor the Coach's Corner panel. They found it very uh, interesting and intriguing, some of the great discussions that we have, and tonight we are not going to disappoint them. So I'm going to start off with uh, in, in order that I read you out, and then I'll reverse it as we go along. Uh, so, Chuck, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, every golfer varies, obviously, with their abilities and understanding of technique. What typically, in, in your mind, is needed or required in developing the basics of golf?
2: Well, I think the first thing you have to do is learn how to hit the ball solid. That's the very first thing. So then, what are the ingredients for hitting it solid? Well, those can be the, that player's neutral grip, uh, that player's pivot points, you know, whether it's front, rear, or center pivot, and then having enough pressure forward. At impact, you'll be able to strike the ball, then the ground. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff about grip, aim, line, and posture. But, you know what, you look throughout all history, the Hall of Fame is filled with players with different grips, different stances, different postures. So, you know, that to me, those really aren't basic things. But I think it starts at at that player's neutral grip, them understanding that they've got to get enough pressure forward to their lead side, and then hit ball first, ground second.
1: Right. Well said. Um, Bill, what about you? I I mean, I I know we obviously don't want to get too repetitive here, but uh, obviously there is a sort of basic understanding in golf and a lot of amateurs, I think when, particularly when they're first coming out uh, as a beginner or newbie as we might refer to it, um, they want to understand the basics and, and sort of how do we start them off and give them a good understanding and, and help them to understand what their goals and, and what their accomplishments uh, should be directed to. And obviously everybody has their own individual goals, uh, but generally as a beginner, wh- where do we want to start them? Um,
3: I really think the balance setup is the first place to go. Um, because without that, um, you know, then being able to grip the club from there, I, I don't think the a player has a has a hoot of a chance to be able to hit the ball solidly um, no matter what they can swing their upper body. If their lower body isn't engaged and balanced on the ground, there's no way that they're going to be able to uh, to make a good, consistent move through the shot, make a good backswing, or make a good through swing, whether it's the putter or the driver.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, Jamie, again, just to follow up on, on that, um, you know, there's a lot of, and we're gonna, the next question is obviously going to clarify this uh, a little bit better, but um most people coming out for for their initial lesson understand you know they've they've got to grip the club and they've got to stand and address the ball a certain way but are, are there other fundamentals are there other things that we want them to to really learn and understand when they first uh, uh you know come out to the to the practice team and uh work with one of us what are some of the things they need to know
4: I think you keyed that up for me <laughs> with uh, well, the way I teach is I call it key golf, which is uh, I blend uh, martial arts principles, which are about being centered, grounded, focused, um, being in charge of your own body, having a very conscious mind body connection, and um, uh, just talking about you know having um, uh, a balanced setup with a lower body engaged It's so important every sport really starts with the lower body feet or uh, the basis of hip movement and then your upper body and shoulders and hands and arms move in connection that's another big principle connection um so the upper body moves in connection with the lower body being a stable and initiating place for that which delivers uh, alignment and power and consistency so i think right. we don't really educate people well enough in how to use their lower body, even though Jack Nicklaus said golf is played between the arches of the seats. <laughs> uh, so those right. are the principles that I think are really important. And the other thing just that I'd like to say, um, what the others were saying are the basics. I call them PGA. Most people think the PGA means the professional golf association. And I call the PGA posture, grip alignment. Those are your fundamentals. Hmm. And LPGA is about loving your posture grip alignment. When everything <laughs> really is in co- the correct position, you learn correct, um, you learn correct posture grip alignment. You feel comfortable. You feel balanced. You feel aligned. You're able to um, move in that connected lower to upper body uh, uh, manner that actually every sport works with, um, except right. golfers seem to try to want to kill it with your upper body. So I would just leave you right. with the LPGA, love your posture grip alignment. And these principles of center, ground, connection, relaxation, stability, balance, these are principles that are, are really important. Right. And that you are the one that makes your golf ball go. So you want to have a, a have charge of your body, mind, and emotions that, and so you can deliver right. your energy properly into the golf ball.
1: Right. Well said. Um, okay, so taking on that understanding, um, great answers, uh, by the way, from all three of you. Um, but, Bill, I'm going to go to you next. Um sort of taking that principle and understanding of, of the basics, uh, my next question is this. Should new golfers generally start with learning the basics? And I'll explain why I'm asking you this. Or should they be taught one area of the game first before moving on? If so, why? And the reason why I'm asking that question is a lot of people say, well, we really should start with, with the short game and sort of work backwards, you know, from green to tee as opposed to tee to green. Um, what are your thoughts there? Is there a certain area of the game that we maybe should be teaching them first? Uh, And if so, why?
3: Well, uh, great question, Ted. And newer players, um, you know, the first thing I do is ask them the level of how much they've played and what their experience is. Um, When I get a, a click on that, the first question I'll ask is, if there was one shot that I could teach you that would make you have the ability or the love to play more golf, what would it be? And it varies from player to player, you know, depending on their amount of time that they want to practice, the amount of time that they have in front of them, and really the type of play it is going to be. Is it going to be they're going to be playing corporately more in corporate scrambles? Are they going to be playing in a in a couple's group? Or are they going to be playing in a league? Asking them the shot that would make them the happiest if they could master it. And that's really pretty simply where I go with it.
1: Right. That's, that's a great point. Um, Jamie, I'm going to go to you, and then Chuck, I'm going to let you round out this question. Um, Jamie, same question to you. Is there a particular area? I mean, obviously, we want to, uh, as you talked about very very briefly about uh, teaching some of the basics in that, the posture, grip, and alignment, uh, but beyond that, is there a certain area of the game that you feel uh, we need to be uh, starting with as a starting point? for, And I'm talking about new golfers here. Obviously, as, as Bill pointed out, there are uh, golfers that have maybe been playing for a little while. It, there might be a different assessment involved. But for newer players particularly, um, where's the best place that you have success starting with?
4: Well, honestly, I do actually like to start with putting and chipping first. I mean, the idea to start with a shot that you like the most or that you're most interested in, that would really get your juices going, I think is great. That's what we call a very student-centered approach, and I think it's very important. At the same time, as a a, sort of pedagogically, you know, the teacher, I think (laughs) that it's very helpful to learn, um, I call it sort of the micro to the macrocosm, small to large, and Tiger Woods actually learned to play from green to T, not from T to green. Mm -hmm. And so that means the cutting stroke is, you know, backs, Hit, uh, make square contact come through, maybe a little more coming through, what we call acceleration. Um, and so, and then that moves to um, a short chip shot and then a, a larger uh, pitch shot may go to short iron. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of building up what we say, building up through the bag. But to me it's the principle of how we, how we grow. You know, no, like when people pull out their driver and they just want to hit their driver and they hardly know the swing or golf, to me it's like, Well, nobody popped out of the womb a a big adult. (laughs) We started out small, and we had to grow. And as we grow, uh, these basic um, skills, you know, walk, talk, et cetera, um, come online, and then we can do more complex things as we get into, like, middle school, high school, and, you know, turn into Mm -hmm. adults. Um, I kind of see college as a fairway woods, shall we say. Um, So I kind of like to follow that pattern um, in a sense, and I think that, um, um, you know, that whatever it is that we choose or that the student may choose and just say, Hey, I've got to hit long shots. That's what I want to do. I'm, I i do not have patience for this, whatever it is. I think that uh, it's uh, the principles, the basics you can teach using the vehicle of any part of the game. Um, mm-hmm. So again, my preference is in fact, to go from, you know, um, the short, short game up to the longer okay. game, but whatever it is, so uh, we teach you the basics are, are part of any part of the game. And so, you know, within that, we can get the basics across. Um, it doesn't help to kind of teach principles separate from, uh, you know, some from the actual uh, shots that, that people are hitting.
1: Okay, great, hit. great answer. No, that's fantastic. Um, Chuck, what about you? I mean, again, we're, we're going to start with some of the, the, the basic fundamentals of uh, putting a, a good working swing together, but are there certain areas um, that you like to start them with um, to, to really get them off the ground, if you will, uh, no pun intended. Obviously we want to get the ball airborne, but is there a certain area of the game or, or does it really uh, matter in your mind?
2: Well, I, I typically start them with chipping
1: uh, as
2: well as high handicappers, <clears throat> simply because I think there's three things they've got they need to focus on. And that is uh, how the club sets to the ball, hands are set to the club, and then how your body is set to the ball. So, so you got your club alignments, your hand alignments, your body alignments, because golf ultimately is an alignment game. Uh, when you look at, uh, uh, at at the data, 78% of all right-handed golfers uh, hit fades or slicers. They're also aimed 30 yards left of their target, so they swing outside in and pull it across. So that's an alignment issue. So we start with chipping, which is a motion two feet back and two feet through. And once you accomplish that motion, then I like to take them into pitching because now we add a little bit of wrist cocking, you know, which allows a second lever to get in there and hit the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as they've become accomplished at that, we go into punch shots, and then from there we go into full swings. So, but each each one of these requires a different setup, a different ball position, and a different alignment. So they're learning they're learning how to get the club to the ball. What the grip and the and, and the handle end of the club need to do, and how they need to be aligned to hit certain shots. So, I start with chipping, and then I go then I go pitching, then I have them hit punch shots, then I hit them full swings. Mm-hmm. And in between chipping and pitching, we're going to do putting as well. Um, mm-hmm. But we, yeah, I don't start at full swing. I always start back and and work it up from small swings because if you can't control the club in a two foot swing, how are you going to control it in a twenty two foot swing? So that's right. kind of that's kind of where we start, you know. Yeah, yeah I I agree players. with. We've all had these we've all had these high handicapped players come to us and say, I I want to hit my driver better. And I go, well, how's your iron right. game? How's your short game? Well, oh, my short game's great. Okay, well, let's get a few wedges.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not so great.
2: Believe me. Okay.
1: Right. <laughs> Maybe we should learn on
2: controlling the club a little more.
1: Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, and I agree with you. I'm laughing because that's generally especially with uh, uh and i think the guys uh by far and i'm talking about the amateur uh players right. out there by far worse than, than young ladies that that i see in that but you're exactly right they they you know and i understand it's exciting to you know smash the the ball you know a couple hundred yards down the center of the fairway who wouldn't be excited with that but there's uh much more important issues that that need to be addressed and fixed first so great answers guys right um, jamie i'm gonna right. yeah i'm gonna Start with you uh on this particular question here uh in your experience what typically gives amateurs the most difficulty uh on the course um based on on your examples that you've worked with and how would you address that area in your lesson
4: well i will say that it, it really does vary individually you know some people surely really have trouble with their driver um i think a lot of people have trouble with their driver uh, especially newer players they'll look at these big club heads that we have these days and they they're you know a little bit freaked out <laughs> it just seems so big and such a big club so um you know I've definitely seen people who are just so wayward with their drives and then it's just catch up after that now they're in long grass now they're in bunkers um whatever or now they're in the trees um I think that you know that. Uh, those are really big issues um, in the first place. So trouble shots. I like to do um, whole lessons and even I've done golf schools on trouble shots because anything that really kind of gets a golfer scared, <laughs> feeling so much stress, and then they kind of lose it. And, they, and uh, they also often don't know any little variations in technique. You know, what do I do with long grass? What do I do with an uphill or a downhill? What do I do when I'm in the sand? Um, so these are the areas that I find that people – uh, sort of lose it the most, well, either when they get in trouble or they're in these sort of trouble shot um, positions that they don't really know how to handle.
1: Right, right, exactly. I would agree with that too. Um, Chuck, I'm going to come back to you, take a breath because uh, I know you just spoke a moment ago. And uh, based on your experience, some of the sure. and and again, I know it's going to vary from player to player, obviously. Um, there's no one or, or right specific answer here, but there sometimes tends to be a pattern, areas that a lot of amateurs have difficulty with on the course. What do you do specifically to address some of those issues?
2: Well, uh, in, in addition, as we know, I mean, driving the amateurs, by and large, drive the golf ball horribly. But the next thing they do really bad is uh, their approach shots. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they don't know how far they hit their clothes, They don't know where to aim. They're aiming at every single pin, uh, and, and they're aiming at they're aiming at right hand pins, being a slicer. So those, that typically doesn't work together. So I see a lot of of uh, course management, which is related to approach shots and what you hit off the tee, what angles, and, and you typically I typically see that more with the uh, with the better player, uh, the 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 high handicap amateurs. Uh, you know, they've got both issues. They've got driver. They've got approach issues. They've got every issue you can think of. Um, but the better, better players don't seem to uh, really understand how the, how, the, how the course design was laid out and what kind of shot it's calling for. Um, I mean, if you're somebody that doesn't have a really good short game, why would you ever try to fly it to the back of the green to a back pin? What happens if you go long? You know, you just wait to scull it over the green. So I think, by and large, amateurs and and even better players, course management is the ultimate thing because uh, they're going to put themselves in positions uh, that they're not used to. And and I've done this a number of times. I mean, I had uh, the top 15 (coughs) juniors from Europe over here a few years ago, and they were each from a different country. And I took them out on the (coughs) par fours. I put them at 100 yards in the middle of the fairway. I put them on the fringes on the par three, and I put them at 225 on par fives in the middle of fairway. All they had to do was make par, and none of them made par. None of them broke 80, and that's taken away their tee shot. So they yeah. just didn't know how to handle that, you know. So I think course management and how to manage your misses—that uh, that's a huge thing. I mean. You know, par par threes, generally the greens are smaller. You don't have to aim at any pins; just aim to the middle of the green. You know, at the most you're going to have yeah. a twenty foot putt generally. You know, um, yeah. par fives. If you if you can't hit the green in two, don't hit a driver then. Hit something you can put in play. Mm-hmm. You're going to lay up anyway, so why not use something you that you can put in the fairway like a three wood? So right. that's the right, biggest I thing agree. For yeah. me. Yeah, that's the biggest thing for me is basically how they manage themselves on the course.
1: Right. Well said. That's, a, that's an excellent point that you bring up. Um, Bill, what about yourself? I mean, I'm sure you agree with much of what both have said so far, but is there anything else that you can think of um, that a lot of amateurs struggle with out in the course? And uh, if so, what is it, and, and what do you do to, to try and help them through it?
3: Yeah, I, I really see a, lo- you know, a lot of what, what uh, both have said, but uh, defining what we want to do. And I think that's a big problem with with any level of player. Um, You know, we'll, we'll say, you know, I don't want to hit it too far. I don't want to hit it here. I don't want to hit it there. And that's the wrong mindset to be taking into a shot, as opposed to saying I want to hit it here, I want to hit it there, I'm going to hit it here. I'm not going to try. I'm going to. Um, And I think that clouding their brain that way, um, you know, it really makes it very difficult for players to do that. And I I work a lot on players defining what they want to do. We'll do a (laughs) playing lesson or a little brief playing lesson with hitting shots on the course and, you know, I'll watch them hit a shot and they'll hit a good one. And I'll say, what was your thought? What was your mindset on that? What were you trying to do? Same thing conversely with a poor shot. What, were you trying, what was your thought process? Well, I didn't want to hit it here. I didn't want to hit it too far. Okay, we have to correct that. And, you know, a lot of it is the mindset of, of any level of player.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. And, you know, something else, too, and I, I know this is kind of a lot, um, both what really everybody is saying, um, but another thing that I find with a lot of, especially with amateurs, and, and even some pros sometimes will see this on, on TV, and they, they reach in the bag and they're pulling out their – their six iron, let's say, and then they'll go back in and they'll pull out their five iron because they've decided that the six isn't going to do the job. I think making a decision and then committing to that decision is something that a lot of amateurs struggle with. And I know that falls into Chuck, what you were talking about with course management, but it's not just about how to handle certain situations, but it's also about making a decision and then committing to that decision. Um, If you, if you're picking up a club, whatever it may be, and you're very indecisive and very unsure that you've made the right choice, more often than not, you're not going to have success pulling off whatever shot, again, it could be. So making that good decision sometimes, uh, or just committing to the decision, even if it's the wrong one, at least making a decision and feeling confident with it, I think adds to, to your level of play. Um, now, this question's is similar, uh, but with a little bit of a twist. And I think, uh, Chuck, I think we're starting back with you. Um, obviously, we, we talked about what some of the challenges that golfers typically struggle with in their game. Um, but what I want you to do is what are some of those struggles um, but yet are the easiest to fix um, from, from a, a teaching professional or coach's standpoint? Some of the issues that a lot of amateurs come to you with that typically are the easiest to fix on, on our end. Uh, anything out there that you can think of, Chuck?
2: Well, uh, other than course management, yeah, I think there is uh, um, you know, more strategy involved. So get in their mind find out what they're thinking, you know. Uh, I do a lot of on-course stuff, and, you know, when they hit different shots into the green, and uh, especially from around, around the green. And, and I'll say, what shot do you, well, do you like to hit here? And they'll, and they'll hit the shot, and then I'll give them two or three options. And i said, all right, so now which one has the highest success probability? And that's the one I would be playing. I would be playing the low success shots, you know,
1: right? Because you get mm-hmm. you
2: get a lot of youngsters all they want all they want to do is hit the high flop shot. Well, that that right. great. It looks great on TV, but if you're not very good at it, why are you going to keep hitting that shot? You know,
1: right, right, yeah, and and you're right. It it ties in with that course management. Sometimes making the right decision. Um, is the simplest fix of all. I mean, if you're if you're pulling out a, your 60 degree lob wedge and you're not very uh, good at at, at uh, utilizing it, there's no point in pulling it out because you're probably going to thin it and hit it over the the green or or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, sometimes making that right decision uh, is, is sometimes the simplest fix. Um, Bill, what are your your thoughts here? What are some of the things that you've come across? Just maybe give us a quick example. Um, of things that, that you see a lot of amateurs particularly struggling with, but really actually uh, an easy fix can be applied in most cases.
3: Um, you know, going back along a bit of what Chuck said is is shot selection, especially around the green. Um, you know, I utilize a little way of uh, throwing the ball. If you and I are having a contest for uh, for a dollar or a Coca-Cola or something, how are you going to get the ball close by throwing it? Are you going to go high? Are you going to go low? Are you going to go along the ground? And, you know, that along the side of the green is is something that's very valuable for the players, but also it's just shot selection in general. I always have a a motto with my players is make the next shot easier than the one you just had, Um, because that's where people get themselves fouled up, as we say, with strategy and picking clubs you know, they, they go ahead and they're sitting in a in a buried lie in the rough at 200 yards and they try to hit a fairway medal or a hybrid, and now they're 10 yards in front of themselves wasting the shot and looking at a similar uh, circumstance. So those little areas of shot selection around the green and, uh, you know, making the next shot easier than one you just had.
1: Right, right, well said. Um, Jamie, what about you? Obviously all of the golfers that sometimes we're dealing with uh, typically have some different struggles with their game, What are some, uh, give us an example of something that you have found is actually has a pretty easy fix um, that maybe we can help some of the golfers that are listening tonight?
4: Well, in in addition to some of the things that have been said, which I certainly concur with, I would put a very big um, exclamation mark on balance. And what I mean by that is so many times you see uh, golfers who maybe they lift and they sway off the ball, they lunge at the ball, right. they lift up, or they uh, guys try to hit it really hard, and then they almost, like, rebound themselves back, and they're standing there completely out of position with no balance, and they're <laughs> swearing, you know? <laughs> they're upset. Right. So, and I always tell my players that, at any level, really, but certainly, you know, more the beginning and intermediate players, that probably the biggest difference between your average golfer out there and touring pros uh, or, you know, um, low-handicap golfers is balance. You just won't see really good players uh, rebounding, jumping back off the ball, swaying, lifting, you know, all these things. I mean, that's not their big issue, right? So, I mean, everybody may get a little bit out of balance, but I think that balance, uh, when – I like to have my players understand what it is uh, and why having a stable stance is so important, being balanced at address, uh, throughout the swing, top of the swing, impact, follow through, standing there. And what one of my um, uh, golfers, uh, he was a a doctor from Mexico City, he called it Posa. (laughs) The minute he hit a really great shot and he was standing there looking like a pro, he said, take my picture, I understand, Posa. And, uh, you know, you'll hear that on TV. Oh, he's posing, she's posing, they like the shot. So right. balance is something we can work on when people understand it, and then you just can't talk yourself into having better balance. It actually takes a certain muscles that allow us to have balance, mm-hmm. so that's working on some of the big muscles in the legs and the hips and the glutes and the uh, the, the, the sacrospinalis muscles, the one that holds, holds us up in the back, in, in our backs, um, some of the ab muscles. So we can work on balanced muscles, and it turns out that that has a wonderful effect in your your general uh, health and, and well-being. It can prevent falls and as we are getting older and in senior, So I think yep. balance is absolutely critical. People don't understand it well enough. They don't know how to achieve it. And they also don't know the physical exercises that can improve their, their chances of having the strength to have, have balance. And then the other part that goes in conjunction with that would be this negative self-talk. People really get yeah. down on themselves and you know, the minute they hit a bad shot, they've got a million excuses or a lot of blames or they just you know, sort of get upset and then they're no good and they're you know, kind of shuffling to the next or angrily moving on to the next shot or fearfully moving on to the next shot. So uh, I would say balance and negative self-talk are two things that, that really make a big difference that I see a lot uh, having a lot of uh, impact on the golf course and that we can work on with people pretty readily.
1: Right. Right. I would I would concur wholeheartedly with – Uh, Everything that you just said, and uh, as well as uh, uh, Chuck and and Bill, I think there's some great uh, answers. And, you know, it it, it varies, obviously, um, with individual students, as we all know. I mean, everybody has a different makeup, if you will, uh, when they're out in the golf course. But generally, we see some commonalities uh, when we... You know, been doing this for a while, and you start to see uh, a certain repetitiveness in certain areas. And you know, Jamie, as you pointed out, balance is, is a key issue. Obviously, if you're not in balance, all of the other pieces don't don't sort of fall into place. Um, Bill, I'm going to flip it over to you now. Uh, we're going to start with you, and then and then Jamie and Chuck on this uh, second to last question. Um, you know. And I'm not looking necessarily specifically um, in, in, in full detail here, but I just want to – because some people get confused with this. Um, we're talking about bunker shots uh, give a lot of amateurs difficulty. Does the technique between a fairway bunker and a greenside bunker and if uh, differ? And if so, how? I think a lot of people, you know, they watch on TV and they see, um, you know, the, the pros that get into a greenside bunker and they see – them making all kinds of uh, changes to uh the way they address the ball and so forth uh and a lot of times of course when we see uh players hitting out of a fairway bunker we don't always get the same angle so they're not always clear you know do i set up the same way is there a different technique so maybe just briefly explain a little bit um the difference between getting out of a fairway bunker as opposed to a greenside bunker or are there differences
3: yeah I, i i Simply put to a to an amateur and when i 'm talking to players it 's the difference between hitting a ball thin and hitting a ball heavy um, in a fairway bunker we 're literally trying to catch the ball first and catch it thin is an is a is a attitude or a way that we look at it Whereas a greenside bunker we 're utilizing the bounce of the club catching behind the ball and moving the sand first to get the ball to come out high and soft I mean simply when I talk to players. You know, gripping down a little bit on the, on the club and catching the ball a little thin out of the fairway bunker, being a little more balanced and stable, with even the ball forward a little bit to catch the ball first and catch it thin, versus um, attacking the ball behind it with the with the bounce of the club to move the sand and pop the ball out uh, greenside.
1: Yeah, uh, and and that's a uh, and see, this is a question that I get quite often. Um, with with uh, amateurs particularly <clears throat> obviously <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> as players get more developed and get a little bit more familiar within the sand, um, you know they they understand the techniques and that, and obviously there are variations I think that can be made either way, but generally, the rule of thumb is obviously in a fairway bunker you're you 're hitting uh, making connection with the ball first, and then obviously with the greenside bunker you 're trying to take some of that sand out uh, with the and sort of lift the ball out if you will um, Jamie, I want to I sort of ask that question in a slightly different way for you just cause, so that we don't make it too repetitive. But um, let's focus for a second, if you will, on the green side bunker. And what I want to talk about is, is maybe you can just very briefly explain, and I know it's difficult when we don't have the visual uh, ability here, but explain some of the, the key components to setting up to hitting a successful greenside bunker? Because a lot of people I see, I mean, I see all kinds of setups and, and approaches and how to, I see people leaning way over to the left and some people sitting way back and so on. So maybe just touch a little bit on that setting up for a greenside bunker, what uh, some of the key components to being uh, successful for getting out of the sand.
4: Well, a few components are to take a wider stance so that you've got stability and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we know that you kind of uh, move your feet around so that you can dig in there. Having stability is really, really important. Um, some people talk about lining uh, your your um, you know, feet up a, or trying to can line the feet up a little left of the hole and then take the club outside. I think that's a little complicated for people. I think it's um, you know have a wide stable stance and the backswing on a bunker shot tends to be steeper. You know, it, it's just take it up, and then you're going to be able to drop it down and bounce the back of the club more easily on the stand. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a quicker action with the wrist as you were taking the club up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that, that that's also important. And generally speaking, with most shots, unless you're on a kind of a downhill in a greenside bunker, to play the ball more forward in the stance is going to help pull off the club. Uh, I just, excuse me, lost the ball so that it'll get up over the, the lip of the bunker uh, more easily. And a really nice practice that I think is terrific, and I've seen tour players warming up this way, is to, uh, easy to remember, draw a line in the sand. <laughs> so you take your club and right. you just draw a line in the sand, and then you're standing you know, with your stands and dug in and straddling it, and practice that quicker more steep number quick but just you know steeper uh, backswing and dropping and bouncing the club just a little bit behind that line an inch or two and bouncing the club and having a follow through and and then just kind of inch your way up so that you keep uh, practicing dropping the club uh, just in that spot if you've picked an inch behind the line that you've drawn Um, and so in that way you're really practicing the eye hand coordination and having the the club consistently land about an inch behind where the ball would be. After you've done a whole bunch of those, put a ball down and just try to, to repeat that same motion. The ball will fly out on the sand. Um, Not by hitting the ball. Of course, the greenside bunker, as we talked about, is more hitting the ball. You don't want to get stuck in the sand. You're looking for some distance. But this draw the line in the sand practice is probably the best one I know to develop that kind of coordination and consistent entry uh, and bounce of the club through the sand, so that you can really develop that nice, uh, that special sound and feel that we have when there's a good sand shot uh, in in a greenside bunker.
1: Well said. Chuck, again, I'm going to alter it just a little bit for you. Um, You know, obviously, something that uh, we see a lot on TV as well um, with a lot of professionals is the ability to be able to um, stop the ball. And I know it's not always easy, especially with the greenside bunker, Um, you know, because you're coming out on sand, you can't really impart the, the same. Uh, back swing that you normally would with, with a golf club. Um, but we have seen some players uh, over the years, uh, a lot of professionals that had an ability to be able to get out of the sand and actually put a little bit of check on the ball. Um, explain a little bit how they're doing that. A lot of golf uh, amateurs well, ask that question all the time.
2: Yeah. So first as an amateur, you should never, ever attempt to do that because
1: uh, <laughs> you 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 have to get closer
2: to the what? golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what well, you saying? We can't. Uh, I, I, I'm saying <laughs> that, that uh, most right. amateurs will do one or two things: they chunk it and leave it in the bunker, or they blade it over the green. So, right. So when you when you see those guys and gals spinning it out of the bunker, they're not hitting two inches behind the golf ball; they're hitting slightly behind the ball. Uh, right. All, uh, not not quite like a fairway shot because you're trying to hit a fairway bunker. You're trying to hit ball first, as Bill said. They're still trying to hit the sand first. They're just trying to hit it much closer to the golf ball, and and they have they have much better control over their golf club than the amateurs. So you know when you when you when you're in the bunker, like for instance, you know we have fluffy sand Mm -hmm. here in Florida. So with fluffy Mm -hmm. sand, you know you need more bounce and you play the ball more forward. If you play some, if you're in part of the country where they have firm sand, you need less bounce and you play the ball farther back. Uh, Because if you try to play it forward, it's going to hit the ground, skull right into the golf ball. You know, hit the sand, I should say, the firm sand, skull right into the ball. But the advice I give most amateurs, I go, look, this bunker is designed to be a stroke and a half penalty. That's how the architects design it. It's up to you whether it's going to be more than that. So don't try to hold this. Your first job is just get it on the green so you have have the opportunity to try and make a putt. Once you are pretty consistent with getting out of it, then start taking a little better aim. Uh, another thing that 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 most amateurs do is they will use the same uh, wedge, no matter mm-hmm. if, they, if they've got you know ten yards to the to the back left pin, and it's you know, it's a front right bunker, or if it's just sitting over the lip, they use the same club. And and the touring pros don't. They they'll even hit it with a pitching wedge, depending on how far back that that how far back in a that pin is. So they might right. use a 60, they might use a gap, they might use a 56, they might use a pitching wedge. So, you know, I mean, I've seen Gary Player hit a three iron out of the bunker to a, tuck, to a, uh, a real up-close-to-him tuck pin just over a ridge. So we're not hmm. all going to be Gary Player or Seve. So the first rule is get out of right. the bunker, you know, and get it on the green.
1: Right. Well said, and that's a great point. And something else, too, speaking of it since you mentioned Seve, um, I remember years ago I think it was in uh, Golf Digest that I read this but Seve, uh used to actually go to the beach and right. hit balls out of the sand um, and we've got some great beaches here in Florida uh, so I don't certainly don't want to suggest that people need to be going down to the beach and start hitting golf balls but uh, you know maybe if you find a little isolated spot somewhere um, great answers guys. I had a question here that I wanted to post to each of you uh, at the end of, of uh, discussion, and I thought this was sort of apropos considering uh, we just uh, finished up the, the Ryder Cup, and unfortunately, as most of you tuning in tonight uh, know, at uh, Team USA, of course, did not uh, uh, manage to, to steal the cup away from Team Europe. Um, so I'm going to start uh, uh, sort of at the top again. Chuck, I know you just spoke, but... I want each of you just to sort of give your your quick thoughts on this but um my final question is is more of an observation in the past uh weekends Ryder Cup of course team Europe clearly dominated uh, in their matches um it was you know no uh no bones about it in your thoughts and, and and opinion what should team USA take away from the experience and what can they learn from team Europe's style of play uh that's for you Chuck and then Bill well, and then well, Jamie they-
2: yeah well, the Europeans have always been united as as one. they've always had fun, uh, you know they hang out together. I mean, they do a lot of a lot of things together the 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 biggest thing is in Europe, uh, you don't learn uh, playing golf, playing stroke play. you learn match play and you learn nine whole match play events. you play you play very little stroke play as a junior or or growing up in Europe. It's a lot of match play. Mm. We don't do that over here. We do a lot of stroke play. So that that's that's two big advantages they have. And you know, and I, and I think, you know, you can look through back all of our successes and and all of our failures as a team. And at the end of the day, the coaches, you know, the coach coaches, and the players have to play. Uh, one thing I noticed was all of our guys looked like they were just flat worn out. I mean, they looked like yeah. They looked like they'd been through the ringer. You know, they had no energy. Uh, it didn't seem to affect the Europeans, but it sure no. affected it. Sure affected the, sure affected the uh, U.S. players. But again, at the end of the day, we uh, our, our teams don't seem to have the camaraderie that the Europeans have. The, our teams, you know, U.S. players learn to play the game differently than the Europeans do. The Europeans learn how to play in the wind. And hit those low flighted shots. They learn how to play match play. They don't worry if they make an eight. get being in a match play, they're just one down or whatever. You know, they don't worry about that. And we seem to, when we get you know one or two down, we start pressing. And there's a lot of holes left. You know, so I just think it's a difference in the two cultures basically, and mm. and basically how, how the teams interact with each other.
1: Yeah. Some great points. And, and, you know, I remember a number of years ago, this is several years ago, uh, years ago now, excuse me. And I remember that, that last point, uh, that you had mentioned about really how the players interact with one another. I know that that was a criticism, um, for team USA, uh, years back. And I'm surprised that that's still becoming an issue because I remember, and I forget who was the, the, um, uh, uh, captain that year. It, uh, escapes me at the time but i remember they actually tried to do some things to create more of a bonding effect and uh it really uh it didn't seem to 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 you know get the same uh same results um bill what about you i mean you know the other thing i want to throw in here and, and get you to comment a little bit about so again so we're not getting too repetitive um there are a lot of players i've noticed and and you know god love my love watching tiger and and fill in that, but there are just some players that don't have a good Ryder cup record. Uh, some of the other guys that have been on there, uh, in the past have always had pretty good matches, but, uh, these two really don't have the greatest of, of match play. Maybe they're just not suited. Um, should future captains consider, uh, a little bit more carefully, uh, on team USA, uh, who they bring in, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I, I, I... Would have to agree with that a bit, um, Ted, but, uh, you know, it really comes down to, when I I see this, they're complaining about, you know, the setup of the course and this or that. You hit fairways, you make putts. And our squad did not hit fairways and did not make putts. It's as simple as that. You know, everybody's talking about rolling the golf ball back. It doesn't care if you hit it 800 miles. If you're not hitting the fairways and you're not making putts, you're not going to win. It's playing golf. You know, we can talk about match play versus this is playing golf. I make three, you make four, I win. And that's really what it comes yep. down to. I think we lose sight of that an awful lot on our squad and the way we're going. And I just don't think sometimes the hot player, this player, that player, everybody was so up with DeChambeau coming in, and, and he laid a big rotten goose egg. I mean, same with <laughs> Tiger, same with Phil. When it comes right. right down to it, I mean, it was a stinky egg that all three of those players laid. You know, fortunately, Finau did play very good, but it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. I make three, you make four, I win, you lose. Yeah. We don't hit fairways, yeah. we, don't, we don't make putts. I mean, really, when it simply comes down to that, and to do both of those, you have to be playing light and loose and have a mindset that that's what you're going to do. And I I really don't see it happening that way. You can go strategizing and whatever. I like Azinger's pod system. I think that was the best way to go about doing it. And we've left Mm -hmm. that. We have task force about this. We have task force about that. You don't have fairways. You don't make putts. You don't win,
1: period. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point as well, um, Jamie. To round out your thoughts on this, you know, are 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 the the players and and even the coaches maybe making too much, uh, you know, maybe trying to strategize, if you will, too much, and maybe it just needs to be more simple. Let's get at the ball in the fairway and let's make some more putts. What are your thoughts on on what Team USA should take away from last weekend's Ryder Cup?
4: Well, I think the thing that needs to be more simple is to kind of get out of their heads and to get more into their hearts. And what I mean by that is this, that when we talk about camaraderie, when you look at the Europeans, they're having fun. They, they have the love, shall we say, you know? Um, and it's just yeah. natural. I mean, the Americans have tried to make pod systems and this and that. In 2016, when the Americans actually did come back and win, what they said was, we were a family. And so when Mm -hmm. there's more of that, that feeling, I mean, you know, they're all great golfers. Come on. I mean, look at their world rankings. Look at their records. They're major champions. They're they're amazing. But who can get out there and perform and get the ball in the fairway and get the ball rolling in the hole. That's not about better technique. That's not about better strategy. That's about, in my opinion, um, uh, their, their state of mind, their state of being, and what I also mean by that is I speak to CEO groups a lot and work with companies around their team culture. It turns out that there are three H's that are extremely important to peak performance. One is health, kind of obvious, we're so not going to talk about that. The other two are happiness and harmony. It turns out that people perform better, they do their jobs better, they play golf better, which, when that's your job, when they're happy. It's not that you get happy at the end, it's a way to get there. There's a, a natural energy and a relaxation and a joy and a, and a positive, I can-do attitude when people are happy. Uh, and we saw all the unhappiness at Ascension. We're hearing all these stories um, from the days before the Ryder Cup ever started uh, between Patrick Green, Jordan Spieth, or maybe Dustin Johnson, and Bruce Kepka whatever. This was like there was a lack of the happiness and, and the other ages, harmony, lack of harmony, lack yep. of happiness um, right off the bat. These things aren't, you know, uh, new age or something like that. They're not soft skills. Harmony is needed in a great football team or a great football play. You have a broken play when there's a lack of harmony. You, have a, you score when there's harmony, when there's harmony in the golf swing, and, um, and when there's harmony in the family, when there's harmony in a corporation or in, in a working group um, at, at work, you know, in a, cor- in a business setting. So I think mm-hmm. that that's really what we're lacking and that the Europeans have so much more of. Interestingly, in 2014, when the Americans also played very poorly and lost after the 2012 Great Collapse, what happened then? You had a great team captain, which was Tom Watson, and you had Phil Mickelson publicly criticizing him in the the press. So when there's yeah. that kind of you know, some kind of rancor, that sort of disharmony, that lack of love or camaraderie, right? People just don't perform as well. So these are principles of peak performance, and I think that the Americans go in the direction of strategy, and it's a head thing, and it's a strategy thing, and and all of that without addressing those those kinds of fundamentals to peak team performance, individual performance and team performance. The Europeans are long on that. The Americans are very short on it. And we saw that from even before anybody got out on, on the golf course, as much as they try to um, kind of create that that team family feeling. The Americans just start out uh, in a deficit compared to the Europeans.
1: Yeah, and that that is so true. That is a great point uh, that you make as well. I think all, all three of them are, were some great points. Um, And, and, you know, something else, too, that I've noticed, and I'm looking back, uh, you know, through my mind and and looking at some previous, um, you know, Ryder Cup events, and I'll I'll tell you something that I remember, uh, and I believe it was at Kiwa Island when they played. um, And, and again, if my memory might be a little foggy, so forgive me, but, um, you know, the late Payne Stewart, I believe, was, was, uh, was playing. Something that Payne Stewart had, and I think, Team USA really needs is is he was a great, not only a great player and just a a good human being but he was a great cheerleader I mean, he would be on that side whether he was in or out of a match and he would just be like uh, you know I don't even know how to explain it but he would just be there Um, you know, I remember when he won uh, you know, the US Open and, and Phil Mickelson lost Uh, you know, and, and of course, Phil was, was having, uh, he and his wife were, Amy were having a child, you know, that famous line that, that Payne said to him at the end, you know, you're going to be a father. He just always seemed to have a way of sort of uniting that. And, you know, I I think that's really what team uh, USA needs is, yeah, it needs a great leader and its coach, but I think it needs somebody out there just really getting everybody else fired up. I mean, I remember many times when Seve Ballesteros, even though he was captain, I mean, he just had so much passion and energy in his play and also in his, um, you know, on the side that he just knew how to get everybody charged up. And I just think that that's something I've noticed. and, And Bill, I think you had said this, you know, we saw some sort of sour looks uh, you know, there's a there's a photo circular uh, circulating around, of course, uh, uh, of Tiger, and you can just tell by looking at his face that he's obviously, I'm sure, disgusted in his in his own play. But it just, you know, you can tell uh, there's just not that happy uh, emotion behind it. So, um, and nobody likes to lose, but you know, sometimes you just have to have that positive energy coming in to an event first, and it's not just about rank and file. So, um, great discussion, guys. I'm going to give you each uh, just a quick moment. Uh, Jamie, I'm going to start with you, and then I'll go backwards. Uh, Bill and then um, uh, Chuck Finchoff, uh, thank you again for for joining tonight on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, but also um, I want to give you guys an opportunity to uh, reach out to the folks listening, uh, how they can get a hold of you. Uh, Jamie, you go ahead, ladies first. Nope. Uh, not sure did jamie did you hear that
4: oh i'm sorry i was on mute I, uh, pardon me i said first no, of all sorry. thank you uh, yeah sorry thank you for uh, all these great questions and kind of uh, moving around and, and golf was great and to get everybody everybody's um perspectives was really wonderful so thank you for that uh people can reach me at www.kiagolf.com k-i-a-i golf KI is about uh, harmony. <laughs> it's about when everything's connected and moving to, you know, from that place. So uh they can write to me at jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at kiigolf.com. And uh, they can always call me and they leave a message on my voicemail. I do get them, and that's 760-492-GOLF, 4653. So, um, and, you know, I do uh, long-distance Skype lessons. I do in-person lessons in clinics. I travel quite a bit and uh and and so um you know do golf schools we can always arrange to um uh do some really great events i also do corporate events and business and golf and peak performance kinds of training so i um, happy to hear from from folks and um just thank you always for the opportunity to to uh share about this game we love so much
1: i appreciate it thank you jamie as always uh bill um update quickly and uh and where can the folks reach out to you
3: yeah, you can always find me at billabramsgolf.com is my website. Uh, my winter uh, location, which I'm going to be here uh, about the 1st of November, is Grand Palms Resort in Pembroke Pines is my home base. I'm also uh, coaching at uh, Gateway Country Club with Dave Impastato Golf Channel Academy there in Fort, uh, Fort Myers, Florida on the west coast of Florida, um, as well as Balmoral Woods in the summer months. Um, I also have... Uh, with Blast Motion, I do uh, lessons uh, remotely with video and uh, with sensors. So uh, please look, uh, look forward to seeing everybody. Give me a call and uh, get in touch. Thanks again for having us, uh, as always, Ted. I
1: appreciate it. And
3: thank you, by the way. Uh, Bill uh, reached
1: out to me a little over a week ago uh, and introduced me to a great uh, referral network, uh, alignable.com. And uh, I'll tell you, I've already had some great uh, responses. Of course, uh, it's a, a great way to network, uh, not only uh, in your local area, but obviously all across uh, the United States and around. So uh, thank you, Bill, for, for that invitation. I really appreciate it. I uh, always like my, to my find some great w- ways. And, uh, and also thank you for the uh, great recommendation. Um, Chuck, last but not least, Chuck, how can we find you?
2: Uh, you can go to my website, chuckevansgolf.com. Uh, My phone number, email is on there. I'm on uh, all the social media, just uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn as Chuck Evans. So pretty pretty easy to find. You just got to remember the name. (laughs) But we do uh, we do schools, traveling schools. Uh, We also do online coaching as well, Uh, corporate clinics, corporate outings. Uh, I mean, you anything that's that's remotely related to golf, uh, we do so. (laughs) But you can find all the information on the website.
1: Perfect. And thank you, Chuck, as well, for that great recommendation as well. Uh, on alignable.com of course i reached out to a lot of my not only my fellow pros but um, business associates through uh, all different types of social media and of course we started connecting here over this last week or so and uh, both you and, and bill uh, were very generous and in, in posting a, a great recommendation to to me and i appreciate that very much so thank you as well chuck all right guys well great uh, coaches corner panel i've got to let you guys go and, and go and relax for the evening you've had a busy day and uh, you had a great evening here on the, on the panel so thank you until next
3: time
2: Okay. Thank you. See
3: thank you guys. Thanks so much for having us, Ted. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Take care.
4: Yeah. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special uh, guest on the coaches corner panel. Uh, Chuck Evans, uh, Bill Abrams, and of course, Jamie Leno-Zimron. Uh, always do a fantastic job. And uh, I want to also thank uh, the uh, new sponsor on the show, golfswing.com. Here's a little message from them. Uh, Take a listen.
5: Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? Golfswing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, Golfswing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, Golfswing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com.
1: All right, that was from our new sponsor in the Coach's Corner panel, GolfSwing.com. Thank you guys for your uh, support in the show, and I look forward to developing a a very long relationship with you guys, but thank you for reaching out and uh, very excited to have you guys uh, on uh, this very first show here um, together. All right, I've got a very special guest uh, coming up here, and she's very patiently waiting in the wings. So let me just tell you just a little bit about her, and then I want to bring her on. Uh, her name is Yvette Uh, uh She is the um, uh, Chief uh, Transformation Officer of your Invisible Disability Group. Uh, she's also a thought leader of the 44 Signature Program, uh, Pillars uh, Process for Newly Disabled, Uh, and Diagnosed Persons Exclusively, uh, synopsized in her training workbook, The Art of Adaptability. Uh, She also co-authored My Mommy Had Brain Surgery and I'm Okay with Her Sons uh, when they were seven and five years old in an effort uh, to stop bullying uh, and turn their uh, storms to stories. And yes, uh, she's also a wheelchair golfer. She was on the Women of Golf show several months ago with my good friend and co-host LPJ, Uh, professional Cindy Miller, and she joined uh, some other great guests, uh, Gianna Rojas, of course, who is the one-handed lady uh, golfer, uh, who's a good friend of mine as well, and part of the adaptive golfers community. We're going to talk a little bit about Yvette's journey uh, first off, and then we're going to sort of morph, if you will, into some of the things that she's doing uh, to help some of the adaptive uh, folks out there, and also a little bit about golf as well and how she's doing with that. So let me welcome my very special guest, Yvette, The guests. Yvette, how, how are, you, are doing? you doing? just
6: great. I, how I'm are doing,
1: you? I, I'm doing very well. I'm I'm chuckling a little bit. I've got to do something about the time difference. I I keep forgetting that people are on different coasts and different time zones, and and uh, I'm, I'm snickering a little bit because I know you'd called in uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, we got a mix up on the time, so that's my fault. So my apology. Uh, but I'm glad you were able to uh, to correct that and, and make it back for, for the second half. So um, welcome to the show. And one of the reasons, Yvette, I wanted to have you, uh, as I mentioned just to the folks, uh, even though you were on uh, another show that I do Tuesday mornings, um, obviously you were sharing the mic, if you will, with some of the other guests. And I wanted to give you a little bit more time on your own because you have a very unique story. And I'd like you to share a little bit. So let's go back a little bit. Um, and maybe just share a little bit about your background, and and how things came about to where they are today.
6: Sure, I'm not sure how far back you'd like me to go, but I can tell you that um, somewhere around six to seven years ago, I could say I was in a totally different place—a uh, corporate network systems engineer for IBM, traveling about ninety percent, and. Um, relatively newly married two small kids ended up going back to school after getting my engineering degree to get an education degree Uh, being a left brain logic engineer i thought i had to go to school to be a good mommy and after graduating with a totally different degree that used a totally different side of my brain i became an educator and went off to haiti you know after the earthquake hoping that i can help in that mission trip and At the Mm. same time, I had this great opportunity to um, take advantage of this incredible fully funded Ph.D. program at Harvard. So I graduated with an education degree in the top of my class and was now being looked at Mm. for this opportunity just about six weeks to three months before the opportunity was available to me. I suffered a traumatic brain and spinal cord injury. The brain injury um, ended up being something that was genetically in me since birth. Uh, It had remained dormant, presented itself through some paralysis, went into brain surgery, obvious pressure was in my head and it had to be um, removed, if you will, and um, they needed to do brain surgery for that, walked in and never walked back out. So a result Mm -hmm. of that, obviously, is losing my job, losing my ability to speak, to walk and to talk and in addition to that i found out that i also lost executive function so it took several years for me to recover but obviously that scholarship was no longer available my iq dropped substantially so i'll probably never be another harvard candidate but um, i have this executive uh, function that i'm working on restoring and finally you know i have this emotional intelligence which makes me almost a totally different person like a social animal which i could have never been as an engineer
1: Right, and and what's interesting about your story is, is, you know, you not only, and this is really what impressed me when you were on uh, the other show earlier in the year, is, you know, you were dealt a, a very rough hand, to say the least, but yet, rather than, you know, sort of just withering away and and kind of feeling sorry for yourself and I'm sure there were moments when you struggled with your emotions anybody would Um, you chose to to rise above it and get out there and do something and even though you had to make some drastic changes you actually went out there and sort of tackled it and you're still obviously dealing with some some day-to-day struggles and and you know weekly struggles and that but you chose not to let it put you down, you decided to to use it as an opportunity to educate others uh, that maybe are are suffering through some of the things that you might be suffering through. So um, let me say this, and I want to get to the, to the, one of the first books here, and, and thank you, by the way, um, uh, Yvette, you sent me a, a copy of both of the books. We're going to talk about them here a little bit. Um, the first one that I want to talk about is uh, My Mummy Had Brain Surgery and I'm Okay, and of course, you wrote that. Um, book, uh, or cohort wrote that book, if you will, with your your two sons, Isaiah and Elijah. Um, Why did you feel it was necessary, first off, to write the book, and why did you want to include them in the process?
6: Well, Ted, I'm glad you asked that question, because it wasn't even my idea,
5: really. It was
6: my children's idea. And ironically, Phil had my engineer brain. I don't know that that would have been something I was open to. But as my more recently educated teacher brain, it made sense to take their temperature on a regular basis. And so when they told me they were being called wheelchair boy or Mr. Wheelchair USA because of my pageant. And, you know, people were saying things like, why does your mommy have wheels and my mommy have feet? They actually came home and said, hey, mom, you know, our life's not that bad. Like, why does everybody think we have this horrible life? We, we love our lives. And how can we let them know and share it? And for me, I just said, you know, tell the story the best way you can. And they felt like writing it would be great, that they can share it with people. And I, and I helped walk them through that. So, ironically, it was their idea. And they they needed me to help support them through it. And I'm doing this newly disabled. So, you know, my husband joined in. We prayed a lot. Our faith played a big part of it. And now they use that book for two reasons. One, they use it as their college fund. You know, they are now 10 and 12, and they're excited about having this source of income that's going to guarantee uh, that they're going to have a college education, which, by the way, puts me as first gen. So neither one of my parents could read or write not to mention go to school or complete school. So I'm first-generation high school and college. So for my kids to already have their college fund up and running at such a young age and to know that they're contributing personally was really exciting. I just wanted to give them something they could touch, something that they can express themselves and go back to if ever they were bullied about their mommy.
1: Right. And, you know, what a lot of people, obviously, I think as we start to understand the different changes happening in society and that, you know, obviously kids at that age, they don't understand, you know, the the, the teasing and, and so forth. They don't realize um, the impact it has. And what I liked about what I found very interesting about the book is that you address a lot of things like, you know, help people to, especially kids, to understand some general questions. I'm just going to read out a few of them here. But, you know, first off, what is the brain? You know, a lot of kids, obviously, at, at that age, don't don't really understand. They've heard it. They've heard that word before, and they kind of have a little bit of an idea. But you've basically done the book in such a way that even at a very elementary level, a child can pick up this book and certainly get some general answers to questions they might have and might not understand, and it can help them initiate a conversation with their parents about some things that maybe they don't understand. So I see that the definite benefit um, that it offers uh, for parents to be able to educate with their children.
6: That was exciting for us because ironically, as we went to self-publish this book, there was no book within their age group right. that was that was a true-to-life book, right, not fiction, right, but a book that really talks about something real in their age group, to think that your brain controls your entire body, yet there's no um, private or independent book for children, right, written for children, for kids, by kids that talk about the brain and talk about how to talk about it. And really helped us to talk about it and talk through it as we were writing it because I was a scribe for the most part. I was like, what would you like people to know? What were some of the things that you had to do that you liked or that you didn't like? And, And the great thing about it is, even though it does talk about the brain and that it's written by kids for kids, it's not just for children with parents with brain injuries. It really talks about disability and a voice that a part of the family who is more often missed can actually be heard. I wanted them to be heard, not just in our household, but wherever they went. So being able to turn bullying into a book in retrospect seems really smart, but I wasn't as smart about it at the time. It just really worked out that my kids were smart at the time.
1: Yeah, and and also, too, there's a reason, folks, uh, for those of you tuning into the show tonight, why I wanted to have this conversation. And obviously, we're going to talk a little bit, um, you know, obviously, this is a golf show, so we're going to talk a little bit about golf, of course, too. But I think it's very, very important. And I I want to read something out very quickly here. Um, And and I think it was brought out a number of times. But um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you were on the the other program, Women of Golf, with with another guest panel. And Gianna Rojas, of course, as I mentioned, has been a guest of mine a number of times. And one of the interesting stats that um, she brought to the table uh, was based on a, a study that the University of Clemson had done. And it was based on uh, numbers and that of, of how many people fall into this category. And it can be from a variety of sources. It could be somebody such as yourself um, that maybe has, has suffered a, a traumatic brain injury or it could be somebody something that uh, has been like this from birth and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of different categories, but when she read out the numbers and gave me an idea of how many people fall into this category, uh, it was staggering. It was, uh, and uh, again, I'm I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but it was around the 22 to 24 million uh, individuals in the United States of various ages. And that includes also, uh, and certainly not everyone but um you know our, some of our veterans and things like that through PT, uh, PTSD and and uh, p s t d sorry uh and other uh a- areas of of um uh, disabilities and what i found very interesting and in, through some of the conversations Yvette, that i 've had with jana is that this is an area uh group if you will that really the golf industry uh has ignored but yet there's a lot of individuals within that uh, group that probably would love to play golf or learn to play golf, but don't feel that it's an option for them because they don't see anybody like them uh, or maybe has the same experiences out there playing. So they, they're not really pursuing and this is why, um, you know, I know that Jana has approached you and, and, and vice versa to really help in that community. So um in addition to writing the book and, and educating about some of the issues that you're dealing with, you're also reaching out within the disabled group community and showing them just because I now have a, um, a situation in my life that has changed. Doesn't mean I have to stop doing what I'm doing. Some things perhaps, um, but doesn't mean I can't pursue other things. Uh, so talk a little bit about that. How did that relationship, um, come to play with you and and the adaptive golf community.
6: It's an interesting story, uh, Ted. That Clemson University study found that 10% of people with some disability now play golf today. 22% Mm -hmm. of those with disabilities played golf before they had their disability but don't play today because they don't know that it's something that's available to them. And then 35% of those individuals with disabilities are currently not playing golf but are interested in learning. I fell within that category, but not so much that I would pursue it. The way Mm. that it came into my court, if you will, was through the PGA, surprisingly. So I got on social media through my brain injury to help support others. I found it very therapeutic to share my story and to be able to see myself through the eyes of others and support those who had questions and challenged me to do things that maybe they've always wanted to do or didn't think I could do. So PGA contacted me based on my social media presence as Miss Wheelchair USA. Mm-hmm. And I was on social media, I was doing a lot of really fun things and they contacted me asking me to support their effort to have people of color, to have women and to have those mm-hmm. with disabilities to look at golf as an athletic option, and health and wellness was kind of the motivator for me because being sedentary 99% of the time, I needed to move my body. And golf didn't feel like a sport that would move me per se, but because of the different equipment that they have available today, I can actually be elevated at about a 45-degree angle on equipment or even 90-degree angle. So it's um, a paragolfer and um, different equipment that they have out there. So when they came to me and said, hey, Yvette, we'd like you to try our Get Golf Ready program, we'll teach you in bay at a PGA Tour Superstore so that you can get comfortable. But we want you to be in a multi-ability group of women who just like you would like to learn more about golf. And so from the age of 17 to 77, we had about Six or seven women learning to play golf. I was the only one using a paragolfer inside of the PGA Tour Superstore near my home. And so what we were trying right. to do was to make sure there was a directory that showed me where to go and which golf professionals were trained to teach me in my current position, to meet me where I was. And at that particular store, Um, there was an actual coach there who I didn't know at the time also had a a disability and he did have some mobility challenges and he was able to walk me through playing golf. And it was a six series training and on training number six, I actually got to go out to a real golf course on a beautiful day and hit my first golf ball um, on on Mm. the course. And, you know, obviously PGA came down, they had their cameras, I did some interviews and some photo shoots. And then when they left, I really got to play golf, and they said, you know, we want you to show up at the CNN building tomorrow in Atlanta. HLN wants to interview you. I know it's short notice, but we're really excited about what you're doing, and we want to televise it. So the next day it was televised. (laughs) My coach and I were on the show. And then, you know, I think it was right around the Olympics, a couple months later, I was in PGA Magazine, and I've been playing ever since.
1: Fantastic. And, you know, to me, somebody that's in the, um, you know, in the golf industry, that's exciting to me because I want for everybody, regardless of what their ability is, to be able to have access and learn. And whether you, you know, have to have some sort of uh, pair mobility vehicle or assistance, uh, or whether uh, it might be somebody like uh, Gianna Rogis, who has um uh you know an issue with with her hand um you know she often has uh, expressed about some of the stories and I, I know she shared one a couple times on on my shows where uh a young girl who has the same uh adaptability challenges that uh Jana has um actually saw a video of her talking about playing golf and this young girl of course uh, had an interest there but didn't think there was anybody that sort of fit in her group, if you will, doing that. So she actually reached out to Gianna and I'm sure you're probably familiar, more familiar with the story than I am. Um, but there's just one example. So it, it's about, as you put, it's about education and really reaching out to all communities and saying, you know, Hey, this is something, it's not only uh, a game that can be fun and, and obviously has it's uh, some challenges um, but it's a game that's inclusive regardless of what your abilities may be. And it's a game of a lifetime. I mean, there's people, as you said, you know, that into their seventies, eighties and beyond um, that are playing this game. And regardless of what version you may have to play based on your abilities, it's still about being part of that much bigger group. And I think the fact that the awareness that, yourself and others are bringing, I think, is, is a win-win for everybody. And I'm, I'm very uh, honored and, and proud for you uh, and well as the, the others that, uh, that are in that group for, for reaching out and taking the time. And it just goes to show that no matter what your uh, circumstances in life may uh, present you with, that you never stop living life. And uh, I think you've done a fantastic job. And that's one of the reasons, as I said, I wanted to have you back on this show uh, to spend a little bit more time with me uh, on your own. So um, thank you, uh, Yvette, for uh, for what you're doing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your other book, uh, The Art of Adaptability. And this uh, explains to me what the four fours, uh, what that means for those of us that maybe aren't uh, familiar. Talk a little bit about this book. What was the purpose behind putting this book together? Uh, But first, explain to me what the four fours, uh, what that term means, what, what you're talking about.
6: So, obviously, I wasn't expecting disability, and I didn't have experience with disability. And we spent the first two years of my recovery trying to figure out, how to live through this, uh, if that makes any sense. And what I found was if I knew better, I would do better. And I needed to, if you will, document my experience to share with others. I, I hadn't thought about writing a book until I realized that there's four specific areas that we need to discuss when someone gets a diagnosis or has a specific disability that limits their mobility and changes their life the first four four which is just four just different steps is to basically understand like who are you as simple and basic as that sounds what i spent the first gosh year if you will doing was getting talked off of a ledge every single time i went to the doctor's office and so what happens is if he only has five minutes to talk with me. He has to give me the worst-case scenario so he's not held liable for telling me what the possibilities are. And what that did was it changed who I was every single time. So what I needed to be able to do and what I shared with others is make sure you are covered in the area of your identity. Who are you? Make sure you know who you are, that you're comfortable with who you are. And in my case, I actually had a card that told me what I did the things I was proud of, my kids, and all the other things that I needed to remember that no matter what happens when I leave this appointment, I am still a vet. I am still an engineer. I'm still a mother of two amazing children and a wife, and -hmm. that my faith will get me through this. And the identity part of it seems so simple, but in that state, you're so vulnerable that you don't always know where to go and what to do. So uh, the first four four was who are you. Make sure that you're always confident about who you are. Know who you are. Write it down if you have to, and get a tattoo. But know who you are at all times. So that was the uh, the first four, and that's the reflection exercise that you might see in the book. And then you know the second one is yeah the first one four one is for you right, and four two Mm -hmm. is your family right it's for your family in my case it was just my husband he was the only caregiver that i had and i needed to make sure he had respite that he wasn't working so hard to take care of me that he didn't burn out but also to make sure that i had the support that i needed based on the prognosis that i was given i needed to make sure do i need to leave do i need to go to another state where i have more families i need to make sure that my home life and my support system was in place get my friends and family in place again it sounds simple but these are the things that get missed and they're not the things that the doctor will discuss with you right and so that's the second Mm -hmm. four right and the third four is for now forever or for how long So in my case, I did not have a clear prognosis. They weren't expecting me to have a spinal seizure or spinal difficulties during the surgery. So I didn't know if I needed to have respite care forever for a short Mm -hmm. period of time. Did I need to bring in a third person to help care for my child? Like I needed to be able to be fair enough to my family to let them know how long I would need their help and support. Because they have the right to make the decision as to how long they're going to be involved in my recovery, if at all. And that's the same thing I share when I volunteer, you know. And then finally, the fourth four is healing what's broken. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to be who I was, and it was tormenting. Uh, Having to think that I've lost so much and that I no longer existed as I knew myself to be was more depressing than the diagnosis itself. And that's why I got up. That's why I got up when my then um, seven-year-old son asked his teacher, was his mommy going to die? He had never seen me horizontal for long periods of time, so he got worried. He said, my mom is not getting out of bed. He didn't really care or even uh, concern himself with the fact that I had surgery. He just wanted his mommy back. And so I had to make a decision in that moment to tie myself upright in my chair and and make sure that when he came home from school that I didn't look like I was in a fog and that I was present and that I was willing to work harder for him than I was willing to work for myself. So we need to make sure that we understand that what doesn't mean it can't be fixed. It doesn't mean that it can't be repaired or replaced. And I was able to put the old event behind me and actually do a lot more activities as the, quote, new event than I ever did as the walking event. Right. And so those are the four-fours, and I just think that as we go through these four-fours as an initial opportunity, not just for the family, friends, loved ones, and individual with a disability, but also in the workplace, because we have these workplace leaders who are saying we're open for diversity, disability, and difference, but the culture is not cultivated, and no one else knows that HR is bringing in this whole new motley crew of individuals that look, act, and behave differently, and then that's ends up being a risk to the organization because they're bringing people in and the culture doesn't really fit their vision for the organization. So this book also works as a workshop for corporate organizations who are trying to cultivate their culture to invite and prepare themselves for disability and difference. And here's the last reason why that's so important. Four out of every six individuals have a visible or an invisible disability. We're talking about accidents, we're talking about illnesses, we're talking about injury, and we're also talking about aging. So when you think about that population and that it's the largest people group in the country, and oh, by the way, it's an eight trillion, eight trillion with the T TED dollar industry. So when you say that they're missing out, you're absolutely correct because not just as organizations who are looking for that fiduciary cap, but you're also talking about employees who are looking to invite amazing diversity of thoughts and diversity of ideas and skill sets into the workplace. And the loyalty, I have to I have to just brag about that a little bit because there's a 40% <laughs> unemployment rate about people with disabilities. We're, we're, we're at the 40% mark because people just assume that because we're disabled, we probably won't be good employees. But because we are so grateful and we're so good at what we're good at that the loyalty is there. The retention is, is, is almost a win-win, if you will, bring someone in who's willing to do the work and stick with the company because of, you know, the fact that you have a workplace that's diverse.
1: Yeah. And that's a, that's a, an excellent point. You're exactly right. And I I think a lot of it, and as I I mentioned a, a few moments back, I think a lot of it really stems, Yvette, with um, education. I think, uh, you know, I've looked through the book. Obviously, I've only had it for a little while, so I haven't had a chance to go through everything. But it's very well put together. And as you say, it's a great workbook, um, you know, certainly for an HR department. But it's also uh, great for even in the education system for helping people understand exactly um, what many of the people in, in this particular group uh, are dealing with and there's a lot of questions uh, and certainly you know we're not going to be able to answer them all all the time um it It takes time and we'll continue learning new things as we go along but I think as a society, you're exactly right there is a large population um and that's just you know what we talked about some of the stats you read out earlier and, and uh, the one that I threw in there um you know that's just talking about the United states we're not even looking now in a global s- sense so um, that number and those numbers are certainly much larger globally so okay. it, it's a it's a huge segment of the population and I, I want to just quickly go back to to golf real quick um, you know the industry spends you know millions and millions of dollars on advertising and promoting the latest greatest equipment and you know it's it's exciting it's interesting for those of us you know in the golf industry but um, as Gianna, and I keep using her as an example because some of the discussions that we've had, um, both on and off the show, um, were very, very intriguing. Um, you know, she's used a lot of different uh, equipment. I'm talking about clubs and, and things like that. She's tried them and actually found some that worked very well with her circumstance. And what's interesting is. This is just a, a, a club that just by happenstance happens to work well for her. Now it may not necessarily work for everybody that falls into this group, but there is a, a great opportunity for that business to reach out to this community and say, you know, we've developed something or we can continue to develop further products that can be used by individuals that fall into the this disability group Um And, you know, the the products are already in place, and I think there's a great opportunity for the industry to educate themselves and to, I mean, if they want to develop something, developing a driver that claims to hit 400 yards, develop some equipment that can be used by somebody that has some adaptability challenges, now you're talking about developing a product that is worth something in my opinion. Because, I mean, everybody can claim they can hit further and put more spin and do all this kind of stuff, but if the person doesn't know how to use the equipment, it's not going to matter, you know, a hill of beans. But if somebody can put their minds and thoughts together to develop something that can be used by another segment of the population that isn't being addressed, that to me is a win-win situation. Um, Because then they're going to start drawing people that normally, you know, don't have... Uh, an interest in golf, now they're going to say, hey, these guys have got something for me too, right? Exactly.
6: Yes, absolutely. And and I love that you're using Gianna as an example because she's good. She is amazing. Oh, I, know. I don't know if you've ever played golf with her, but she uses that uh-huh. one hand better than most <laughs> golfers I've played against. So she's taught me quite a bit and, again, if, if, if we can talk about her a little longer, she just wanted to sure. be with her husband. She just wanted to hang with him yep. and play golf because she likes golf. And, and, and that's, that's really what happens. It becomes generational. My kids are now playing golf. They might <clears throat> not have ever played golf had I not been introduced. So you have the solo rider, which can be used for any mobility challenge or not, because it's simply an accessible golf course, golf cart uh, that is hand-driven. And, and the great thing about right. it is I can swing my legs out, but I have used men's club, men's clubs because they're longer. I'm coming from a longer distance if I'm in a solo rider. And if I'm in a paragolfer, I'm, I'm, I'm further away from the ground, so the longer clubs work better for me. Now, I don't know if the manufacturers of this equipment outside of the solo rider and the paragolfer know that we're using their clubs, but the interest is enough to do exactly what you said could be done. And I think right. you look at golf almost as a niche, right? You, you almost have this target mm-hmm. audience that you expect to play golf. And, uh, you know, maybe major Fortune 100 companies, you expect that they're going to have an employee resource group or at least upper management coming to their favorite golf course on a regular basis for meetings. But um, have you ever stopped to think, that there are individuals within your organization or your employee resource group for people with disabilities that can get on that golf course with you. I am encouraging large companies to sponsor some of this equipment at their, va- at their favorite golf co- uh, course so that you can now invite these individuals onto the course. And we're also very excited about the PGA and the PGA Tour Superstore um, training more people like Tim Wilkes, who was my coach, to get out there and learn to train people with disabilities because, see, I wouldn't know what to look for. I don't know what I don't know. But Tim Wilkes being a professional golfer can say, these are the adaptations we can make with what we have already. And he could take some of those hacks, those adaptive golf hacks back to the manufacturer and show the interest and show more of a micro niche. So the niche is great. I think it's been, you know, uh, matured over time. But the micro niche is what they're missing. They're missing the part of their existing niche to make it even tighter, closer, and more directed because only maybe 15% of disabilities today are visible. There's 85% Mm -hmm. of disabilities that are invisible. So you have, you know, our war heroes coming back, you you know, with the prosthetics, or the PTSD, or, you know, like Gianna with the one hand and, and the uh, the missing fingers, you just have as many different variations in disability as you have fingerprints. So I, I agree that it's a market that isn't being uh, challenged enough. But what is being done, and, and I don't know if you know this or not, but it's being looked at as an Olympic yes. sport, a Paralympic sport. You know, once it gets to the Paralympics, it'll be too late for people to get in on it, right? So I I really recommend, you know, that the USAGA, which is the United States Adaptive Golf Alliance, that uh, you connect with them not only, you know, to play socially, right, and recreationally, find a, a golf course nearby that has already been vetted, and that already has PGA-trained professionals to help you in your adaptive golf, but also has access to some of this equipment so that when you get there, you're well-received. Because I have some stories of my own where I've had to roll into, you know, a, a golf uh, course and say, I'm going to play. Uh, I know it's, this is scary for you, but I promise I'm not contagious, and I'm here to play. Right. And I will do okay. nine holes if I have
0: <clears throat> but I'm playing
6: today and I want to be in this tournament. I want to be able to raise money for whatever cause this is today. And, and I want you to watch me right. and, and tell me what you think after. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a difficult road, but Gianni and I fortunately have strong enough personalities and a large enough amount for golf <laughs> that we don't take no for right. an answer easily.
1: <laughs> well, I love that. And, uh, you know, and that's sometimes what it takes, you know, you, you, you to, uh, uh, are, are fast becoming pioneers uh, for this particular movement, and, and I, um, I'm always happy to, to give uh, both of you a voice uh, with the programs. Uh, and I think, you know, just to touch on a, a little bit of a personal story, I had a, a cousin of mine, unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but um, some years ago, he uh, uh, was involved in a, an accident at work and he lost um, from, I think it was, I'm trying to remember now which. I think it was his right arm. Yeah, it was his right arm. He lost from his elbow down, and um, he ultimately had you know prostheses and, and things like that over time. But uh, he he grew up and you know loved playing golf and wasn't sure if he was ever going to be play you know play again. <clears throat> and um, excuse me. And long story short, he uh, he decided to to get back out there, and of course he could only at that time he could only uh, play with the, with the one hand as as Jana does um but what was very uniquely interesting is for many many years uh I can remember because I, I played with him on and off over the years as uh, as we uh you know grew up uh he was a terrible putter uh-huh. and interestingly enough after he had this mishap um putting became his his strong game so much so that he played at um, Glen Abbey, up in, of course, I'm originally from Canada, uh, which is in Oakville, Ontario, Canada, and was the home of the Canadian Open for many, many years. In fact, they just played the Canadian Open again this year. And out of the 18 uh, greens, he one-putted 13 in one of the rounds that he played. Um, Now, so he garnered the name one-putt from all of his his playing (laughs) buddies. Um, And he proudly you know, uh, wore that. In fact, they had a shirt made up that said one putt, but you know, what was interesting is that he, he could have walked away and said, you know what? I'm never going to be able to play or do something that I love. And he decided much like yourself to rise up, um, and, and accept the challenge. And he adapted, uh, his game to be able to, you know, to be able to, uh, get out there and enjoy it. And we played for many, many years after. And unfortunately, uh, due to other health issues, uh, you know, he, he's not with us, as I mentioned. But uh, the, the point is that he was able to adapt, get out, and continue to play something that he loved. And he actually improved in an area that he was not very good at because it gave him a greater incentive to want to get out there and work on his game. And obviously, he couldn't hit the ball as far anymore, and he wasn't quite as, as uh, you know, able to hit some of the shots that he once did, uh, but he adapted which is the key word there is he adapted to his circumstances and didn't give up uh, on himself. And he played golf uh, until the, you know, until the very end. So um, it's possible. And, you know, he, he's living proof as are you and as are Gianna and and many others out there that are, are doing just that. So I guess my words to the listeners out there is You know, listen to tonight's story. If you're just joining the conversation, um, you know, we're we're talking with my very special guest, uh, Yvette Peguice, and she is um, a great inspiration. She obviously uh, suffered uh, a a traumatic brain injury a number of years ago, but she's risen above and and met the challenge and has written two great books, uh, one uh, alongside two of her boys, uh, Elijah and Isaiah and it's called My Mummy Had Brain Surgery and I'm Okay. It's a great book, and we're going to talk in just a moment about where you can get your hot little hands on it. And then the other one is The uh, Art of Adaptability, um, which is more of a, a workbook, if you will, um, for not just companies, but uh, also uh, families to use to better understand some of the challenges and on, and how to cope and deal with, with some of those circumstances that uh, you might be facing. So um, two great books. Let's talk about um, one final thing, if we can, and then I'll let you uh, let the folks know where they can uh, read this. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the golf. What do you see in your mind, uh, uh, you know, when you close your eyes and you see moving forward where golf is concerned, what do you see, what would you like to see happen and what do you see happening?
6: I see individuals today who are post-war, post-injury, getting health and wellness experience that they weren't expecting. I use muscles when I play golf. My swing uses back muscles that I don't use anywhere else. The social growth of my uh, friend group has grown, and it's included some people I don't think I would have met otherwise. Those are unexpected right. benefits of the game. There's the um, mental wellness of uh, Giannis to get out of bed and get out of your head to think that your right. world is bigger than just the room where you spend your respite to know that you can get out of the house and get out of your bed and out of your head socially and emotionally really contributes to mental wellness. What I hope to see going forward obviously is this pair of golf movement. I am still in the recreational stage of golf. I can totally see Gianna doing professional, like competitive golf in the Paralympics. I'd love to see golf added. I'd love to see, you know, different cities and states motivate others to get out of bed, out of their head, onto the course, get into the sun, and learn this game of golf. It's actually my favorite land activity and my land sport that I wasn't even expecting. So I really am grateful, obviously, that um, Golf Talk Live and, and, and you t- give us a, a, a voice to talk about adaptive golf because most people don't even know that I could play golf, Ted. And when I tell people they're not usually believing that I'm playing the golf, they know. And um, it is the same golf and it is the same game. And, and for the most part, to be able to play it socially has completely and totally changed my life. In fact, we didn't talk much about this, but I was able to take golf to one of the Miss Wheelchair USA pageants. Uh, there was a local mm-hmm. coach there. He came out, and each of the women who were um, competing for their respective states were able to try golf for the very first time. And at least fifty percent of them did it again.
1: Yeah, and and you know, and that's something. Like I said, it, it obviously. Has opened up, uh, you know, competing in that uh, competition as well has allowed you to open doors to, you know, folks that maybe didn't have uh, or wouldn't even think uh, of exploring this as an opportunity for them. And as most people know that have been in the golf business, whether you're uh, somebody like myself that teaches and obviously does what I do here on on Thursday nights uh, and Tuesday mornings on on the shows um uh, or you're somebody that that works in a in a in a company it, you know whether it's a top 100 or not um golf is is always been a great business tool and there are okay. so many entrepreneurs out there and particularly women entrepreneurs that are fast growing uh at, at a just a phenomenal pace and i think what i, I the message that i would want to relay to to those listening is let's not just limit it to those groups. Let's expand it to include other groups that maybe might not think that there's an opportunity for them. Whether they ever have the ability to play, uh, as you suggested, Gianna might in a paralegal uh, competition or not, um, just getting out there and connecting and reconnecting with your community. You You mentioned earlier, and I've actually had some on the show, uh, guests who uh, were former military and uh, obviously have, uh, have uh, had some, some uh, injuries as a result, uh, and yet they've too have grappled to golf uh, as a way of, of, you know, getting them up out of bed or getting them out of. It, it's actually literally has turned their lives around because what it does is it gives them a purpose. Some of them have played golf in the past. Some have never picked up a golf club at all in their life. And now as therapy, they're using that and they've found a new quote-unquote love um, and are out there doing whatever they need to do to enjoy this game. So there are so many great opportunities that can present itself through this great game. It's not just a game. I've always said this and I've said this very recently on the shows. Golf and life mimic one another in so many ways, more so than any other game or sport out there. And I'll very quickly explain for some of you that maybe you're just tuning in tonight for the first time. When you think of yourselves, for those of you that, that play golf and for those that you have never played golf, um, hear this. When you're out in the golf course, you're going to be faced with various challenges, whether it be a bunker, uh, you know, uh, um, water hazard, or, or deep rough, or whatever the case may be. To successfully navigate some of those challenges, it takes a certain skill set, not just physical skill set, but it takes some thought upstairs. So how do I do this? What, do I, you know, what approach do I do? How do I handle this particular situation? Well, the same thing happens in life. We get faced with different challenges in life, and how we handle and adapt to those challenges decides whether or not we move forward with our lives. So golf can be a great way – Of testing some of those challenges they're not going to be exactly the same but it gives you and helps you to develop a skill set in handling and overcome obstacles that you can then transfer into your everyday life experience so there's a great benefit to learning this game it's not just about hitting a little white ball into a hole Uh, it's it's about learning uh, new skills learning to overcome challenges that you can later, again, use in your everyday life. And that's really what golf, in my view, uh, is really about. And you can have some fun along the way and meet new people. Um, What are your thoughts there about that?
6: I agree completely. It's a very strategic game. I've had a similar conversation with others, and they're like, well, you know, golf is too slow. It doesn't move quickly enough. Well, guess what? We have two sides of our brain, and we should have equally – um, divided time where we're active and sweating and, and moving quickly and times when we can walk through this strategic game of golf and learn those very things that you discussed.
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's what I try to, you know, when I, when I teach uh, golf, that's what I, you know, it, it's great to teach them the stance and the grip and all these other things, the basics that we, and fundamentals that we have to learn Um, but I want them to have a a good experience when they go out on the golf course. Obviously I want them to have fun and enjoy themselves and whether they're, you know, uh, breaking a hundred or a scratch golfer really is, is irrelevant. If they're out there having fun and enjoying themselves um, obviously I want them to improve as they go along. Um, But I want them to challenge themselves and to have fun and and enjoy the experience. And, and it's a great social thing as well. And it's a great, as I mentioned earlier, it's a great business networking tool uh, for those of you out there and, you know, you can be an employee of one. It doesn't matter. Get out on the golf course uh, and invite somebody out there. Uh, invite a client to play or invite, uh, um, you know, another thing that, that that can be done as well, and I've often said this, is even if you don't have time to play a full round of golf, uh, invite a few friends out and go and and take a group lesson together. Um, there's lots of great programs out there, a wine and dine, if you will, and make a social event and wrap it around some golf lessons or a golf outing of some kind. It's just a great social thing. So there's a lot of different things that you could do. And what you really show here, Yvette and Jana and, and my cousin and many others that, are, that fall into this group, is that there's no excuse uh, for getting out there and trying. Even if you don't become the next latest, greatest thing out in the PGA or LPGA tour, it doesn't matter. Just go out there and try it. And I promise you, uh, you will have uh, fun just like everybody else. Um, Yvette, as we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity for two things. Uh, Let the folks know where they can get the books if they're interested in getting a copy. And also I know that if uh, folks are maybe interested in having you come speak uh, or get involved in in that sort of thing, how they can go about doing that. And, And if obviously your website...
6: Absolutely. And if I could just add on to what you said earlier, it's a great professional game. It really is. I think I've been able to connect on the golf course with people I didn't know before starting the game um, who became so special and important to me um, by the time we got to the ninth hole. You know, uh, it's it's an incredible game, but it's almost like you said, it's the school of golf because you're constantly learning and you can play golf as long as you can get to the golf course. I have, had experiences with, you know, men and women in their 80s still out there playing golf. It's one of the very few activities you can do well into your um, mature and seasoned ages. So, yes, thank you for bringing that up, and thank you for having me on the show. The books are available, obviously, on Amazon. The Art of Adaptability, exclusively featuring the four-fours for newly diagnosed and disabled persons. Also, My Mommy Had Brain Surgery and I'm Okay, Uh, can also be found both on Amazon, you can find them through my website, which is www.yvettepegeese.com. As long as you can spell my name, you can find me, and that's also where you can find our <laughs> books. I also want um, to give you a resource to the USAGA, right? Uh, that's the U.S. Adaptive Golf of America, and, and why that's important is because no matter where you're listening to this podcast from, whether it's live or in a replay, you can go to USAGA.org to find resources near you, wherever you are. And obviously, if you can't find anything in your immediate area, you can contact the USAGA outreach coordinator, which is Bob Thibodeau, and I'll give you his number. Uh, I'm sure he won't mind telling him I said you can call. It's 770-856-9442. Again, that's 770 856 9442, or go to usaga.org to find a local resource, which means someone to train you in your adaptive condition and meet you where you are, and also find you a local golf course that has the equipment that you need to get started. So I'm uh, excited about being on the show. Obviously, it would be amazing if you reach out to me via Yvette Piggy Speaking Engagements at your place of business, wherever it is you're listening to this amazing podcast from.
1: Well, Yvette, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's It's been a pleasure, and I'm, I'm glad that you were able to to come back and join me this evening. And um, I think what you're doing uh, is, is fantastic, not just um, – from the golf standpoint, but just as a, as a general rule, I think that the more uh, awareness that we bring uh, for those out there that maybe uh, are struggling with similar situations um, uh, or, or trying to adapt uh, in their circumstances, I think the more awareness that we bring to it is going to uh, be a, a great thing. And, you know, if I can use golf in some way, Uh, to help further open those doors, you know I'm always uh, available and welcome to do that. But uh, thank you, Yvette, for for coming and and sharing a little bit more of your story tonight with my audience.
6: Thank you for having me, and thank you for leaving the world better than you found it, Ted.
1: Thank you. And say hello to your two boys and tell them they did a great job. They should be very proud of themselves.
6: (laughs) Thank you so much. I'll be sure to let them know.
1: All right. You have a great evening.
6: You do the same. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. That was my very special guest this evening, Yvette uh, Piguis, the uh, Chief Transformation Officer, uh, as I mentioned, of uh, Your Invisible Disability Group and Mrs. Wheelchair International uh, 2016-17 and also the host of www.disabilitylife.tv. Make sure you check her out. And go to Amazon. And uh, you will find uh, her two great books there, The Art of Adaptability, exclusively featuring the four fours for newly disabled, uh, or sorry, diagnosed and disabled persons. And also, My Mommy Had Brain Surgery, and I'm OK. And uh, you can search under her name as well, and her surname is spelled P E. G U E S. And of course, Yvette Y V E double T E is her first name. Uh, again, a special thanks to uh, the guys and, and, and that on Coach's corner, Chuck Evans, Bill Abrams, and Jamie Leno Zimron. Thanks guys for doing a fantastic job. And thank you to GolfSwing.com uh, for coming on board as our exclusive sponsor uh, for the coaches corner panel. Thank you very much. We appreciate uh, your continued support. And on that note, I'm going to leave you with a quick uh, commercial break one more time from our newest advertiser on the program, GolfSwing.com.
5: Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? GolfSwing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, Hit it closer or just sink more putts. Golfwing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at golfswing.com.
1: All right. Thank you, everybody. I look forward to being back next week with another great coaches corner panel. And of course, another interesting guest here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody and have a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye.